Yes, I will. So the research that we're talking about today, um, published on the link that Anna just highlighted to you, is based on seven focus groups that um, Ipsos conducted on behalf of UK to Change in Europe. And they were conducted back in autumn 2021. So I think it's just worth stressing everything I'm going to say predates kind of I'll use Partygate as the shorthand for kind of all the stuff that's happened since November. Um, now, I think in some senses that gives us, it actually gives us some strength to these findings because we can see how some of these trends were already in place before some of these events happened. And also the findings I think speak to why those um, events then have quite an, an impact in terms of the volatility of polling um, afterwards. You see a lot of focus groups of the Red Wall. Uh, at one point, I think you could probably have made a perfectly good living just being a focus group participant in the Red Wall. Um, so why are, ours, why are ours different? I think there are three things about ours that are a little bit different. First of all, the breadth of them in the most of the focus groups of the Red Wall have, have really focused on that group of voters that switched from Labour to the Conservatives. Understandably, they were the most um, consequential group of voters, but we wanted to be broader than that. So our groups included not only the Labour Conservative switchers, they also included Brexit Party voters, they included non-voters, they included voters who'd stuck with either of the two main parties as well. So we've got that breadth and we're looking to see what those voters have in common as well as what's different between them um, in terms of the way that they talk about their political identity and political loyalty. Second, we are not, we conducted these groups in autumn and we're reporting on them now. We're not trying to capture the current political mood with these groups. We're interested in that kind of longer term changes in party loyalty, in local and national identity, and in how people respond to policy. So there's no attempt here to try and capture how people felt in the moment. That wasn't the purpose of the research. And finally, we have zoomed in to a particular part of the red wall. Um, people get very keen on zooming the red wall out and making it much bigger <laughs> than it actually is. Um, we've zoomed in in this, in this particular piece of research on the area in Yorkshire and Humberside because we were interested in local identities and how people felt about their local areas. And so it, was, it made for more coherent focus groups if the people were all roughly in a similar area. So the key findings from the research, I'll go through these around some, some key headings. One of the first things I think to say is that people were really quite positive about their local areas. So when you read the policy documents around levelling up or you even read the kind of um, newspaper reports on, on left behind towns and, and so on, this gave a slightly different slant to it in that people talked about how beautiful their area was, the green spaces that they had, how well connected it was, how good the bus services were, but mostly actually when they talk about connection, it was about jumping in the car and getting on the motorway. So it was, but, but nonetheless, they, these were kind of positive aspects of local areas that quite often get left out um, when people talk about the red wall and when pe people talk about leveling up. We did get, um, a feel from people that they were worried about certain things like local crime rates and, and the, um, the kind of iconic empty shops. But these were more like descriptions of areas rather than the top of their head policy concerns. It was like, well, yeah, there's lots of empty shops, but it wasn't like that was the thing that they most wanted 
to be fixed. And the thing that really came through was people being worried about the cost of living. And I think that's really important given that we were conducting these start of October last year before a lot of the things that have come along, a lot of the kind of bite points for the cost of living had really happened. So people's main, main concern was the cost of living, both their own, their households, but also there was a sense of concern about how the pandemic was gonna be paid for, that this was gonna lead to rises in, in taxes down the line to pay for the pandemic. So that kind of financial set of worries. Given our interests, we did ask, we did ask these um, participants about Brexit. Um, I, think, I think I described it earlier as seeing Brexit as done but not dusted. So there was a clear sense that Brexit had been done and that it had been delivered in some form. You know, the comments like, well, yes, the Conservatives got us out, those kinds of comments, but a real sense that it wasn't finished, that there were still things that needed to be um, ironed out. Even um, these voters talked about the Northern Ireland Protocol, what was going on there. It was also at the time of um, the petrol crisis and sh you know, shortages on the shelves. So they came up as, as things as well. Um, and there was one person who said, um, you know, it, it wasn't the dream. It's, it's not the dream we were sold. Um, another who said something along the lines of, um, well, things haven't really got better as a result, have they? So there was this sense that Brexit was done, but not finished. Then we asked these voters what they thought were the main reasons for the 2019 general election result. So we wanted to get a sense of how they understood it. And this was 18 months on. So obviously with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of kind of taking on board some of the narratives that had been around the election. And in terms of where we are currently in the kind of current political moment, what was most interesting about this was that these voters talked about Brexit. They talked about votes being lent to the Conservatives to get Brexit done. They talked a lot about Corbyn. Uh, one, of the, one of the groups were very positive about Corbyn. The younger Labour voters were, were very positive about Corbyn. But apart from that, all the other groups were very negative. Um, and they talked about Corbyn as a force of motivating them to vote for other parties. But what was really interesting was that hardly anybody mentioned Boris Johnson. So this image of Johnson as, as being a politician that was bringing these voters along. Yes, I think that's true. But I think that's true because of the way he was identified with Brexit rather than any set of particular personal characteristics, which is perhaps, again, part of what's feeding into kind of quite rapidly falling polling ratings at the moment. Um, one couple of other little bits that came out of it that I found particularly interesting. We asked people, rather than ask people about particular party leaders, because we, we didn't want to catch that kind of um, current mood, we wanted to get a deeper sense of what people thought about political parties. So we asked people what they thought the typical voter was for Labour and Conservative. And here, as, as a political sociologist, the thing that most interested me was that the first reference from almost every group and from almost every person was class-based. So when they talked about Labour, they qualified it later, but the first reaction was almost always working class. And when they talked about conservative voters, the first reaction was almost always rich, wealthy, large house, things that related to kind of class position in some way. And I found that a really interesting thing that despite the fact that this election seemed to have turned some of this stuff on its head, people still understood politics through these um, class-based narratives. Um, 
One final thing about leveling up. I haven't spoken about leveling up yet, have I? I'm sort of losing my track in my notes now. Um, we asked people what they thought leveling up was. Most people didn't know. By far the most common response was never heard of it, which, you know, we're talking last day, last autumn. It hadn't been as high on the agenda, perhaps. Um, a couple of people said they thought it related to PlayStation games. Um, one or two said they thought it was um, some kind of, I think the, the, the phrasing was a sales pitch to the north or a kind of sense of trying to, to bribe voters in, in some way or other. So there wasn't a clear idea of what levelling up was. And that comes out in all the quantitative research as well. But underneath that, when you, when you listen to the conversation a bit more deeply, there was nonetheless a sense that, there should have, that they were expecting change in their areas and that government needed to deliver that. So there's this kind of tension between people not really knowing what levelling up was, but nonetheless expecting to see their areas improve and saying things quite explicitly like, you know, if the government don't deliver that, they've, they've lost these voters forever. So that was um, an interesting tension and something that I think focus groups get at in a way that survey questions about whether or not people understand what levelling up means um, don't get at quite so directly. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Paula. Do keep your questions coming in and do keep voting for the most popular ones. Uh, Ariana, let me turn to you for your initial reflections on this. Thanks, Anand, and thanks, Paula, for uh, the presentation. This is like an amazing report. I really, really enjoyed uh, reading it, and it gave me a lot of uh, food for thoughts, um, not least because it links also with uh, the work with white, which I do with, with my second hat, which is at IPPR uh, North as well. And of course, we've done quite a lot of things on leveling up uh, recently. But the first point that, that I wanted to make uh, is uh, the one about um, the, the, the discourse, if you like, of the red wall, and maybe the use of, of the term wall in itself, which seems to be quite divisive because one of the things that I found really really fascinating about uh, uh, your research and it really comes out clearly in your research Paula is that yes um, th these these people actually may have different political allegiances they have been more volatile in the way in which they vote in recent elections but they have very much the same priority at heart they really want to see their communities doing better there is a real strong sense of disconnect between what the political class in london in particular and what happens there at the local level within their own uh, communities so they might express these feelings in different ways politically but i think that the objective that they want to achieve is very much uh, very much the same. And at the same time, that, that connects with the, with the discussion on, on uh, leveling up. It is very interesting to see in your report that, you know, they, they very few actually knew what leveling up was. But again, the need for leveling up is something that they experience in their day to day uh, uh, lives. So uh, this links again to, to the approach the central government has taken to leveling up, which so far has focused very much on kind of big, big infrastructure investment, a lot of promises, some of which have been broken, uh, as uh, our recent, recent research at IPPR North has shown. Um, but most importantly, now that there is the leveling up white paper, it, the, the leveling up white paper is out there, there is a very strong emphasis there in empowering local communities. 
the ambition seems to be right, but what is still missing is actually the, 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 the funding necessary to do that and a strategy that allows all communities to benefit from this kind of more, a stronger form of local empowerment and devolution. Because if we look at the content of what the government is proposing right now, it's still a competitive form of devolution, for example. Communities, local leaders still have to put in bids to get, uh, to, to get into uh, a devolution deal. That is not the type of transformational sort of uh, uh, um, uh, way of doing politics that I think your re report really calls for. I, I read this very much as a kind of a clarion call from local communities in West Yorkshire that says, well, we want our communities to thrive. And perhaps it's time that we get, we are, give, you know, we take the control of that or our local leaders uh, take control of that. So th that's just a few reflections to uh, kick off the discussion. Thanks, Ariana. There's a lot there to uh, chew on. Uh, Will, over to you. Thank you, Anand, and thank you, Paula, for um, some fascinating research, which I think actually broadly echoes lots of things that we, we would find in our research at Onward. Um, uh, there were kind of four things that I just wanted to kind of pull out as kind of key things, which I think are really, are really, really important from this research. So the first thing is your point about the extent to which people understand what levelling up really means and uh, believe that it will happen. Um, uh, what's interesting about your research you conducted kind of uh, four or five months ago now is that um, uh, people, uh, like the PlayStation game quote is just completely fantastic. People thinking levelling up is kind of like uh, like the latest PlayStation or Xbox game. Um, uh, but what's interesting in our groups and in some of our research, we, we see a kind of growing acknowledgement of what levelling up means, a kind of, a kind of tacit understanding that people do kind of get it but I think what's interesting just going back to your research is that even if they don't know what that term means it's quite clear that the voters you were speaking to um, do support the underlying intention of leveling up and do think it's kind of a long overdue uh, kind of policy direction um, but are incredibly cynical about the prospects of delivery. Um, and, and it's interesting thinking about what the cause of that might be. To me, it seems to be partly muscle memory of failed promises in the past and a kind of uh, a bit of a belief that politicians have said some of these things previously and especially Conservative Party, um, but, but potentially all politicians. Um, uh, but then also, I think it's also partly about the cynicism that this is just about winning votes, not about making real change. Um, and so both of those things clearly put a huge premium on the Conservative Party to actually really deliver on levelling up if they want to hold the Red Wall. Um, the second thing that I picked up, just reading through your research and listening to you speak, Paula, is um, I kind of, maybe I might be reading a bit too much into it, but it feels to me like there is this kind of suggestion of um, uh, of some kind of kind of backlash or 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 kind of um, quite real sense of abandonment if voters don't see some of that delivery. So um, uh, so the kind of the sense that Brexit was I mean it comes out very strongly in the research that Brexit was about much more than just leaving in the, the EU. It was a kind of a different type of vote that therefore. Um, therefore, the promises held within it matter more and needs, and there's a kind of a premium on those, on the on those being delivered, um, and some of the change that the the 2016 referendum kind of heralded, uh, that that needs to happen for these voters to uh, to um, kind of uh, stay with the Conservative Party or indeed feel feel kind of positive about politics more generally. Um, the third thing that that we've found again again and again and again, and it comes out very strongly in your research is is just the idea that 
community and kind of what we call the social fabric is fundamental. Um, and I think this has been completely ignored by politicians for a long, long time. The kind of society has been seen as something that government doesn't get involved in, but actually it's now central to our politics. Um, and I was really struck by the quotes in the research about how people said that the North had a stronger community spirit, that people are friendlier up here, they uh, don't kind of ignore everyone like they do down South in London. Um, uh, and we, we hear exactly the same sentiments in all of our research. Um, uh, and that is a great strength, I think, um, for the Red Wall, for the North of England. It's something that the Conservative Party, the levelling up agenda, we've argued should, I think, build upon. Um, but it feels like that agenda is very nascent. Um, it's a relatively new part of our political debate. And there's a kind of question mark about how government can meaningfully foster community. And then finally, because I'm conscious I'm talking for too long, the, the, just the final thing that I just think is fascinating, the quote at the end of your research that talks about um, what the Labour Party represents today and the suggestion of the Labour Party as a kind of middle-class, metropolitan, uh, kind of graduate party, um, I think speaks to the fundamental uh, kind of problem for the for any Labour electoral strategy in the sense that they need to shake off this kind of metropolitan kind of aura um, that, that I think is very re real to voters in the Red Wall, um, but without without losing their metropolitan support, which is threatened by the Lib Dems and the Greens to some degree. And that, that feels to me like an enormous political challenge, which we probably don't hear enough about, actually, um, given we're speaking so much about the Conservatives' problems. Um, so just, a, just some quick reflections. Thanks, Will. I mean, people are friendlier up north, so let's just park that for now uh, as a sort of given. Uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the really interesting things about this, about this delivery point for me is, I mean, from my vantage point, reading the white paper, I thought it was pleasingly and surprisingly long term. That is to say, you know, I found myself feeling relieved that they were setting targets to 2030 rather than 2024. And that made me think they're taking this seriously. But actually, the other side of the coin is there are people expecting to see change. And those people might actually not be that patient. So it's a question of balancing both. But anyway, Arj, over to you. I hope we can now hear you. Hello, can you hear me okay? Great, thanks Anand, and thanks Paula, thanks very much. Anand, I'd second your point about uh, Northerners, first of all. Um, but firstly, um, I think that the really interesting thing from kind of my perspective as a reporter was just how prescient these voters were in terms of when these focus groups happened in September, October and the last few months. A lot of the kind of concerns that they were starting to identify back then have now been manifested in some way by this government and may actually explain why the Conservatives are having such a hard time, particularly Boris Johnson, and why might be having a hard time from his Red Wall MPs, because they'll be hearing this from their constituents. So there's there's a mention in, in the report of, of a feeling that, that the government might be corrupt. Um, we've had the Owen Paterson scandal and the subsequent weeks of stories about second jobs and lobbying and so on, and you could argue that the, the lockdown breaching Downing Street uh, parties kind of scandal plays into that feeling of uh, this government isn't quite doing things the right way um, on levelling up. I, I, I thought the cynicism was really interesting. People were, were kind of expecting promises to be broken. Um, and, and then since then, just weeks later, we had promises uh, on rail improvements in Yorkshire being broken by the government in their integrated rail plan. 
Um, and then also we, we had cost of living concerns before they were before they were properly biting and, and how, how people would pay for the pandemic. And obviously now we're in the teeth of, or about to be in the teeth of a cost of living crisis. The Conservatives are having a big fight over how to fix it. Um, and also there's a debate happening now over paying for the pandemic. Um, this story about COVID fraud being written off, fraud on the, the COVID schemes, I think is not going well among these voters who are concerned about the money spent on the pandemic. And I, I'm picking up concerns from, from voters that that is actually a much bigger story than perhaps we in Westminster think. So, yeah, that was, that was the thing I found interesting was that, you know, these voters almost saw stuff coming down the line before, before it happened. Brilliant. Thanks, Sarge. I mean, understandably and necessarily, a lot of the questions coming in on the Slido are not directly about the report per se, but I feel a total liberty to pose them to you anyway. I'm just going to have to make the best of them, I'm afraid. Because uh, I always get criticised for not using the questions from the Slido, so I'm going to I'm going to adapt myself today and do so. I mean, the first the first one it's an interesting one, and again, it, it's hard to mention from the focus group, but just from your sort of interaction with the region, do you get the sense that that voters in in the Red Wall are more politically engaged? Sort of recently than they were before. So have we seen an uptick? I mean, I know there's there's sort of bits of evidence. Hansard have hinted at this in their annual audit that it's been a slight, you know, since 2016 actually, there's been a slight uptick in political engagement. But do we get this in this region in particular? It seems to me the evidence from the the, the focus groups are a bit mixed on this. Whoever wants to chime in. Yeah. So, so um, uh, it's a very good question. So I think the data would say yes, that there is a higher degree of political engagement, largely because don't, large numbers of don't knows voted in 2016 and to some degree in 2019. Paula will know the stats much better than me. Um, but I think the kind of question is, is are they moving, which direction are they moving in? Are they becoming more politically engaged over time? Or was that potentially a, a moment that might be fading? And it feels to me like, certainly in the groups that we were doing in Oldham last week, that people were becoming rapidly disenchanted with politics again. Um, and that even if they voted last time, or even if they voted kind of against their previous voting pattern in the last election, they were at least kind of, uh, at least kind of skeptical about whether they would vote for that party again and may may even not vote at all. I mean, that we I hear quite a few people saying, I don't know why I why I'll vote again. Um, so it feels to me like there might have been a momentary kind of blip of quite significant political engagement around Brexit itself and the immediate elections after that, but but perhaps that might be fading away again. I mean, I suppose you could be more politically engaged and therefore less likely to vote. Uh, but does anyone else want to chip, up, chip in on this? So that was actually the point I was going to make, that you could be politically interested and in taking a lot of notice of what's going on, but then not turn out to vote. And I think that turnout point is going to be really important for the next general. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to measure it at local elections anyway, but at the next general election, I think that turnout point is going to be really, really important. And the way that turnout has changed over time um, is also a story that hasn't, hasn't been told properly over the period since 2016, in that we always used to assume that high turnout was good for Labour, and I'm not sure that's necessarily straight straightforwardly the case anymore. 
um, that some of the voters that were staying away in 2019 had perhaps been Labour voters and had they turned out perhaps wouldn't have been Labour voters. So we can't just assume that the, the kind of old kind of logic of turnout still holds. The left still assume that high turnout would be good for them, but I'm not sure they're right. Could it also be the case that, uh, you know, this long history of broken promises coming from government uh, might impact going forward, um, you know, the, the extent to which people maybe are not engaged? I think the interest is there in the future of their community, but whether they feel that voting can do actually anything to change that, because uh, as it has emerged very clearly from the discussion and from the report, that kind of history of broken promises, not trusting the government to, even when they make promises to actually maintain them, is something that is felt particularly strongly in uh, in the north of England and in those type of uh, communities that you've analysed. There has been some really interesting stuff out recently on sort of low levels of trust in politics, uh, which is nationwide, it seems. Arj, do you want to chip in on this? You don't have to if you don't want to. Um, yeah, just on, on the trust point, I, I think one thing that came out in this focus group and which you do hear um, Conservatives say a lot is that Boris Johnson People, these voters trust Boris Johnson because he said he was going to deliver Brexit, and he did. Once you take Brexit away, it's it's difficult to see. Um, it, it's possible that some of these voters might then think, "Well, that's done. We don't really trust any of the leaders or parties to to deliver on much else, so we might disengage." I thought that, that might mm. be interesting. And of course, one of the things we've seen in national polling subsequent to when we did these focus groups is. You know, the proportion of people saying that Brexit is being handled badly has gone up. The proportion of leavers who are dissatisfied with the government seems to have gone up, certainly from some of the YouGov polling. So that's that's all quite, quite interesting. And of course, the other thing we've got to keep in the back of our minds when talking about electoral prospects is there won't be a Brexit party the next time we have a general election. And in some of those West Yorkshire seats, that could make a, a, a real difference. Now, this is a real sort of a question, but it's a popular one. So... You're going to have to deal with it. And we can't really skirt around this. I mean, the question from Gary Clark is, will what is happening about Jimmy Savile help or hinder the Conservatives in the Red Wall seats? I think it's best guess time, kids. Um, <clears throat> I can have a go on this. Um, yes, it's difficult to say because it's obviously just unfolding and happening now. I think... You do speak to some Conservatives who say, you know, this was meant to be a dead cat. It was meant to distract from the party scandal. That's why Boris threw it down in the Commons when he was giving that statement on Sue Gray's update. And we've now had over a week of Keir Starmer, Jimmy Savile, Starmer doing a bad job as DPP. That is one argument, and people might hear that, and potentially, even if they don't agree with the with what's happened in the way that Boris Johnson brought up it's a bit like the 350 million in the referendum if the other side's just constantly criticizing your message repeating the message over and over again that might get through to voters on the other hand it's interesting that so many Tories have come out against it and there does seem to be a kind of mainstream um, swaying of opinion behind the fact that this is actually a, a bit of a conspiracy theory. So 
it depends which of those two points win. Do do voters hear the fact that this is a conspiracy theory, which is is how it sort of started out, um, or do they just hear the base points of the the kind of dead cat? I mean, Arj, there was a slight hint of you breaking up in the middle of that, but it got better towards the end. So I think we'll just bear with it rather than risk you sort of disconnecting and reconnecting. I'm assuming that dead cat isn't some cryptic West Ham reference. Uh, does anyone else want to come in? I think I wouldn't want to hazard a guess exactly how this will play out. Um, but these are the kinds of things you see in parts of Facebook if you go poking around in, in local Facebook groups um, and um, other other. I have, I have family in some of the seats that we um, did focus groups in and sometimes some of these things will pop up on, on their Facebook feeds and I'll follow them down into some, some kind of very strange rabbit hole that leads you to some very strange places. So they do, but they, so they do pop up. Mm. But I think the, one of the things is that they also have to resonate with what people already thought about the person that the sort of slur is being made against. And this doesn't chime into people's perceptions of Starmer in the same way, for example, as, as some of the stuff that was put out about Corbyn chimed into their existing perceptions of Corbyn. So I think how it will play out is much more difficult um, to predict. I think there's probably a small group of voters who will go behind it, but they were never coming back to Labour anyway. So in that sense, it might look like it's having an impact, but actually the electoral effect is quite small. Yeah, I mean, the two, two things I would say is, A, be careful of, stereotypes i mean it's just far too easy to say oh well you know there's northern votes that like this sort of stuff i mean and we see with polling over you know net zero or even some of the comments in our focus groups that you know these stereotypes are quite often wrong i suppose the other thing is the degree to which simply saying something gets a message across whatever corrections pseudo retractions come out i mean it's a you know i'm slightly minded of the 350 million per week in the sense that you get something out there and it has an, an effect. But Ariana or, or Will, do you want to? Uh, so, I mean, so I, d I don't know is the short answer, and I don't, I don't really want to speculate because I think it's, it's, I think it's probably too early to tell. But just the one thing I would say is that things that really cut through with voters tend to be things, in my experience, that confirm suspicions or views that they possibly had already, um, and it seems to me that. Um, this this could possibly not do that. So the 350 million a week, people already thought that yeah. there was a lot of money going to the EU that could be going to the, the NHS. Um, it was a lot of the money anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but but I don't think, I mean, in as far as people understand or know Keir Starmer, I don't think they naturally associate him really with, uh, with all of his different prosecutorial victories or defeats. Um, and, uh, and equally, I don't think, I mean, it might attach itself to Boris Johnson if, it, if the perception lands that he has, has kind of deliberately lied in order to evade attention. There is the possibility of damage there, but it feels quite remote from voters' minds to me to have a practical impact over the long term. That's 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 unless something happens. So if this then leads to a large number of MPs putting in letters or a senior regular resignation, then that could lodge itself in the mind of voters. But it feels to me to, at the moment to be quite far from that. Yeah. Ariana, do you want to come in? No need to if you don't want to, but... 
Um, no, I think I, I think I don't have a lot to add on this one because it's a very tricky one, and I, I I agree with a lot of what Paula said in there is in, in terms of a pre-existing perception and how that might pan, pan out as well in relation to this. Let me just explain that Arge is, I think, in Parliament, which is why his Wi-Fi is dodgy and the lights keep going off. In case anyone was wondering, uh, it's an interesting question. I'm going to give this straight to you, Paula, and then turn to the others. It's about. Uh, you know, a lot of Labour voters in 2019 simply didn't vote rather than uh, voting Tory. And do we have any indication, either more broadly or from these focus groups, about that group? I mean, we, we did talk to sort of absentee sort of non-voters, didn't we, in this report on that. But as for the question as to where we might be in the future with that, then I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> we did... Um, specifically set up a group of non-voters um, but it's it's a small group of people and they all had different previous voting behavior so you can't really extrapolate from that to that particular group of, of those that went from Labour to non-voting. Mm -hmm. um, the area I know best about this that I think does speak to the question is that what we've seen is actually really big rises in turnout amongst the kind of um, the liberal left, the young Labour voter, the, the kind of new Labour, not, not new Labour in the new Labour sense, but new Labour as in recent Labour voters. Um, so turnout amongst those groups now is really, really high. Um, and turnout amongst the, what you might think of as the old Labour voter has gone down a little bit, um, especially when you take into account the fact that they are older in terms of age. So they've been generally been more reliable at turning out over time, that has gone down a little bit. Um, I, I often talk about these as this kind of cross-pressured voter who can't easily find a can't, can't easily find a home in our party system. And actually, we also see lower turnout amongst those on the right who are more liberal, who are a similarly cross-pressured but a much smaller group in the electorate. Um, so I think I don't think at the moment it's easy to say how that will pan out, but I think it's you can you can have a stab at it by looking at what the issues are that are coming down the track over the next 18 months up to an election, which look to be largely in the kind of economic sphere around cost of living and, and other things. And that, I think, would tend to make these cross-pressured voters more likely to lead with, with their kind of economic values than their social values and might lead some of those voters back to Labour. Sorry, that was a rookie error. Uh, partly, I mean, it's partly a question about Starmer, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, you know, you might think some of these voters might be getting put off the Conservatives because of various scandals or whatever. But the other half of the question is whether they're being reattracted to Labour by what Labour are offering. So the sort of positive Labour case. Any of you want to have a speculate about this, whether Labour doing both sides of the job or just the sort of destructive rather than constructive bit? Well, um, I, I can come in quickly on that. Um, I just thought it was interesting in the focus group, you had voters sort of talking about Labour as a metropolitan, middle-class, university graduate party, and, and arguably Keir Starmer's not the ideal person to kind of turn around that perception. And a lot of what we've seen in the polls so far, although there's, there's been a slight uptick for Labour recently, but a lot of the Tories' support is going to don't knows rather than Labour. So there is some evidence that Starmer isn't yeah. quite winning those voters over. 
Will, sorry, you had your hand up. So, Anand, I think you've put the, the, the kind of your finger on exactly the problem for Labour at the moment. Labour's doing quite a good job of of opposing the Conservative Party, but they're not doing a very good job of proposing an alternative. Um, and in in our research, we come across very strongly this idea that uh, that, that kind of Labour has not yet done enough to differentiate itself and, and demonstrate a kind of a uh, platform for government. Um, and ultimately, I think it's very difficult to see, especially given the ingrained disadvantages that they have given the settlement after the 2019 election. It's very difficult to see how Labour can win power without set, being much more proactive on what they would do as a, as a dividing line from the Conservative Party. Um, uh, just the, the other thing I would say with Labour is it feels to me like their challenge is also, it's not just a kind of policy challenge, it's also to some degree a values challenge. Like, so when they attack the government, the Conservative Party, um, I think to some degree, I'd be interested if Paolo agrees with this, that um, contributes to the very strongly held feeling that all politicians are corrupt or uh, or kind of broken or what and politics is general is broken. They're not doing enough to demonstrate that Labour is different and a kind of a transformative modernising force in British politics in the same way, for example, Tony Blair did in 97. Um, and so it feels, feels like Labour still has quite a long way to go for the reasons I just outlined as well. Yeah, and I wonder whether those photos of Starmer with the beer, whatever the reality and whatever, you know, however dubious the comparison with goings on in number 10, you know, has that sort of effect. Ariana, sorry. Just come in, um, saying something, maybe a little bit controversial, but does it have, oh, it has to be just about the leader? Is it just about Keir Starmer? Because yes, okay, leadership certainly matters, but we also know from what has been happening in recent elections that um, the ties that bind uh, the electorate with leaders are, can be very, very weak one. And, and that perhaps part of what makes votes even more volatile. Uh, I think, you know, the, Boris Johnson is, is a clear example of that. In your study, it comes out quite clearly that uh, uh, people maybe um, did see him in a positive light a few uh, in 2019, and now that has changed very quickly. So is it just about leadership or maybe is it about more is, is it more about uh, place is that where the Labour Party needs to do uh, uh, better uh, if the point as you say in your report is about political parties um, and, uh, and the need for them to understand better the communities in uh, in those uh, areas then maybe it is about political parties reconnecting uh, with those community and communities and trying to understand uh, what are the needs on uh, 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 on the ground so the importance of play the importance of place and the local dimension. And I think that paradoxically, if we really want to bring it back to the question of leadership, then, uh, for example, the new metro mayors have been much more effective within the Labour Party than the party uh, at national level in capturing precisely the importance of place. And in areas like West Yorkshire, it's quite significant that uh, the, the first metro mayor was elected just last year. And yet the turnout was very much already at the level of those metro mayors that uh, actually were, in, were uh, running for their second mandate. So maybe there is a little sign that it's not just about uh, uh, is the leadership per se of the Labour Party, but maybe a type of leadership and a, a party that understands the importance of place. And that's really interesting. And the sort of political implications of this, I think we haven't really thought through. I mean, with regard to sort of Tracy Braben in West Yorkshire, there's two observations. She, she was on a panel we did at the Labour Party conference. Uh, and the question was, how do Labour win back power? And her answer was, we are in power. 
and which was slightly, slightly jarring in a way. And I wonder how that sits with the national labor message. And it was very interesting last week when the leveling up white paper came out that when she gave interviews, she started off by saying, this is great. You know, we welcome this. This is a really good thing for my, and again, there was a slight disjuncture with the line of the party nationally. So I think, yes, these people are high profile. Yes. They're, they're, they're potentially electoral assets, but at the same time, their messaging is slightly different from the messaging of the National Party because of the requirements of their position. I think that's going to lead to some interesting sort of tensions, perhaps, he says, desperately hoping it will, uh, as, we, as, as we move towards elections. Uh, I'm very excited because we've got a question here that I'm going to pose first and foremost to Paula, because it's right up her street from Finton Hogan. Was the 2019 election part of a full electoral realignment towards cultural issues? And to what extent was this down to Johnson and Corbyn? And to what extent is this more sort of systematic? So we can all sit back and relax now while Paula tells us about all her research. I just post some links, that might be quicker. <laughs> um, so we have seen a change in voters' priorities in that cultural issues have become more important. And I spent years in the mid 2000s trying to get everybody to listen to the fact that cultural issues were important, only to find myself now having to say, but economics matters too. And I think um, the crucial thing is the way that these two things combine. And that's why I was talking about cross pressured voters earlier. So culture isn't going to go away, but culture isn't everything either. So. I don't think we've seen um, a polarization. I don't think we've seen a complete realignment, whatever that would look like. Rather, we've seen a fragmentation of our politics into groups that have distinctive economic and cultural positions that combine together. And different leaders at different times can combine those groups in different ways. So Johnson was, was able to stick certain groups together, but then we see when we start to look at economic policy, those fault lines reopening up and somebody more on the left in terms of economics can stick together a different group of voters, but then when cultural issues take priority, a different set of fault lines open up. So I think it's much more useful to think about the groups of voters and how you can find commonalities amongst them to, to, to bring together a winning coalition, rather than to talk about binaries like it's all culture, it's all economics, or it's all class, it's no class. I think thinking about it, in a way which takes all of those things together at the same time is more fruitful. I'm not sure I answered the question. Mm -hmm. no, no, absolutely. And it's worth adding, and I stuck our Mind the Values Gap report in the questions earlier in response to something else, that actually, in a sense, the economics is more comfortable terrain for the Labour Party because there are, you know, that there are divisions in the Conservative Party over the direction of economic policy that might become clearer if we revert. But do any of you others want to come in on this, whether politics is realigned around a values dimension now or whether that was transitory, whether it was Brexit or whether it was tied up with the personalities of Corbyn and Johnson? I would, I would just say I defer entirely to Paula's research. I mean, her work on cross-pressured voters, I think is absolutely right. And that we can't see either of these things in isolation. We need to understand the interplay between them. Um, it feels to me like, uh, like the next election will be both an economic and probably likely a kind of crime immigration election potentially. So we'll combine both economics and cultural values into to quite a large degree. Um, uh, and, and Brexit might've been unusual in the sense that it was 
kind of primarily through a kind of cultural prism that lots of voters were seeing that particular issue. But it, um, yeah, that would be my view. Ariana or Arch? I, I mean, I, I agree 100% with, with Paula's analysis, so I'm not going to add anything in particular on that. But one of the, of the things that I, I think comes out quite nicely of your report, from your report is also the, the importance of um, territorial and regional identity in certain parts of the country, and in particular in the areas where, where you uh, did your uh, focus groups. And so I was wondering, uh, you know, that we, whether that dimension uh, in a context where, you know, like a lot of these communities don't feel represented represented by national politics, whether um, uh, you know, the politics of territorial identity there is going to play a, a role going forward. It was interesting to see in the report, for example, how Englishness and Britishness seems to be very blurred in those areas. And that goes a little bit against what we see at the national level, where it, 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 some have argued recently, for example, that Englishness is becoming more politicized. But that, that is not really quite the case at local level, is it? Um, it would have been interesting to see, I don't know if you do have data on whether the Yorkshire dimension or the Northern dimension may, makes sense for these voters as well. But I just thought like perhaps going forward, keeping an eye on the importance of the politics of territorial identity might be interesting. Arch, if you have anything um, to I, I dropped out uh, uh, for a significant portion of that thanks to my parliamentary internet connection, but just on the issue of culture, I think, yeah, Paul is the expert here and, and Will and Ariane are probably more expert than me. I think there is, a, there is a kind of element of the government maybe scrabbling around for culture to be something that can replace Brexit as um, a kind of issue or, or area which might re-stitch together. Oh, Arge, you've frozen and... Hello. Oh, you're back. Am I back? Yeah. I've got a message on my screen saying your internet connection is unstable. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, sorry. What was I saying? Um, Who knows? There, I, <laughs> <clears throat> I think there is kind of some evidence that the government is trying to use culture as something to possibly re-stitch together their Brexit coalition of 2019 at the next election. Um whether it's going hard on on statues when no one's actually really talking about statues or you know out in the general public or whether it's you know attacking the bbc for certain things and trying hard oh, your your no. free, your freezing and breaking up I think I think we get the point that, that that there are issues like you know statues, whether it's cultural issues like the BBC or even immigration. Uh, I suppose where I mean none of them it seems to me is as broad ranging, or none of it does none of them does the job as well as Brexit, particularly given trends in public opinion about immigration. I suggest that that is becoming a slightly more complex issue than it than it once was. I'm speaking for you, Arch. So shake your head if I'm completely and utterly misrepresenting. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think as much of a lightning rod or as 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 effective as it, and actually it's backfiring on the government a bit when you when you see them um, pledge kind of strong action on the small votes crisis, but then not actually be able to do anything about it. Um, it, it there is a bit of blowback on that front. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, is there any scope for 
electorally useful collaboration between uh, it says non-conservative parties, big C conservative. Uh, so can the Tories' opponents collaborate usefully in any of these seats? Would that have any impact, do we think? It's a very open question. Yeah, go on, Will. Will's very polite. He puts his hand up. <laughs> so was it, so, so, um, uh, it, is, it is possible, clearly, for the for Labour and the Lib Dems, or indeed the Greens uh, and SNP, to collaborate and try and prevent the Conservatives. And there are quite a few marginal seats where that may be successful. Um, I guess the, the, the more interesting question is, what is the electoral penalty for doing so? Um, I think it's likely, and I think history demonstrates that electoral pacts give the impression to voters that you're not really trying to win an election, you're just trying to prevent someone else from, uh, from winning. Um, and therefore, therefore, there may well be a penalty for the Labour Party if they, if they take that, undertake that strategy. It's also not clear that the maths necessarily stacks up. So even if Labour and the Lib Dems traded votes perfectly uh, in every part of the uh, country. I think it's uh, I think it's true to say that um, the Conservative Party would still be the largest party and may even still have a majority. So um, so a kind of Lib Lab pact, uh, or it may sound kind of nice in principle, but I think there are some obstacles to whether or not that would be successful. I'll tell you what, my God, I miss in-person events because you don't get half the panellists popping off your screen on it. Oh, there we go. It's another one gone. Uh, <laughs> Paula, do you want to chip in on this? So I don't think there's a lot of electoral gain to be had in a very formal pact. I don't think voters um, necessarily like being told who to vote for. Um, I wrote about this in, in relation to the Unite to Remain, and it all looks very nice on, on paper. It's like playing a board game, like Risk or something. You know, we move all these people into this part, but it doesn't work like that in practice because people don't behave like that. Some people who re some people just really want to vote for a particular party, and if you take that option away, it's unpredictable what they might do. They might not vote at all. But I do think there are some gains to be had for a anti-conservative alliance informally in terms of not campaigning very hard in some places and making it you know kind of easy for people to see what the tactical options are in some places but I wouldn't think it was helpful to go as far as a as a as a full-blown kind of rainbow pact um, that that some play some some groups are pushing. And I have to say uh, for those of you who haven't the book on the British general election of 2019 which Paula was one of the co-authors of is absolutely fascinating, not only in its own right, but I think if you're looking ahead to the next election, it's where you have to start because there's some brilliant analysis there of how people voted and why they voted the way they did. And a lot of these questions, it just came to mind because a lot of these questions are sort of tackled directly in that book in, in the context of that election. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, even though it feels like an absolute age. Uh, this is a brilliant question from Joe Rothery. Uh, really interesting question. Do voters see Boris Johnson as part of the establishment now or not? Uh, because it was a sort of the sort of a lot of populist rhetoric around Boris Johnson back when he was running in 2019 of the sort of voice of the people. And he managed to stand as a sort of slightly anti-establishment character. Has that perception of him changed, do we think? Hi, Arj. Um, I don't think 
necessarily voters think he's now part of the establishment, but I think that probably why they liked him for, for being not part of the establishment now might be the reasons they are perhaps turned off by him. So um, they voters probably like the fact Boris Johnson didn't play by the rules, you know, did things his own way, you know, was kind of a bit of a laugh, you know, not your typical staid politician, perhaps talked in the language that, that voters use as well. Um, now the question is whether that's actually becoming a liability and whether voters are seeing that as a liability, I think. Will or Paula? I could just add to that. It's all very well having somebody who will break the rules to achieve something that you want to achieve. It's different completely if somebody is breaking the rules that you thought were right and protecting other people and that you yourself were following. So I think those two things are slightly different. And what we've seen in the polling that speaks to this is a, is a um, real decline in the proportion who say that they think um, Boris Johnson is in touch with ordinary people. I mean, we don't ask, you wouldn't ask whether or not people think he's part of the establishment because you get all sorts of different interpretations of establishment, but you're seeing this real fall. Um, for a long time, Johnson was ahead of Starmer on that question, which should have worried Starmer. Um, but now Johnson's ratings have just slid away on that question. Just, just to add one final thing, in, in my experience and in the research that we've done, um, I think there is still a perception that Boris Johnson is different. Um, uh, that he is not like other politicians. But I think that that perception is, uh, over time, seems to be becoming less positive. So, uh, so in 2019, that difference was a, was a plus. Um, some of the more recent revelations, I think, have, they've, I think, started to some degree to suggest to voters that Boris Johnson is, is kind of chaotic or, uh, or not... Um, not as good at governing as he might be as campaigning and 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 so even if he is relatable the kind of the role in which he's now in um kind of different as a kind of to a brexit delivery role means that those qualities aren't as sympathetic ultimately brilliant thank you uh just going through these i mean <laughs> there's a question here which is interesting you know was there a sense that voting conservative in 2019 was a way of getting resources directed towards your area uh and this sort of ties into the whole subsequent debate about the politicization of the town's fund and things like that our voters just cheerfully cynical i suppose you know you sort of read the quality press bemoaning the fact that all this stuff is very politicized but actually might it be electorally quite effective you know uh vote for the tories you'll get some more cash. I'm happy to jump in on that. I mean, I think, so, so uh, my, my basic view is I think uh, voters think politicians are doing doing all of this stuff anyway. So uh, so if you tell, tell voters that Boris Johnson might be kind of favoring conservative areas, um, they, they might, they're not, they're not gonna be shocked, um, put it like that. Um, it confirms an existing suspicion, whether or not that's true or not. Um, so, um, so I don't think it necessarily is harmful um, for people to have that perception. I certainly think it was counterproductive for the Labour Party to attack the Tories for doing just that because it planted something in the minds of voters that they might they might get something. Um, 
Uh, and when we do, when we do uh, focus groups in places like Red Car or we go to places kind of uh, near to Teesside, people have noticed that Ben Houchen is getting lots of political at attention and to some degree funding. Um, so I'm not sure it's necessary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever propose it as a, an electoral strategy, um, but I do think it's a bad electoral strategy for Labour to continually point to uh, the fact that conservative areas are getting money, because I think it will incentivize voters to uh, to vote conservative in the hope that they'll get more attention. And I think to be fair, to be fair to them, Labour have realised this and are not doing that. Uh, Arj or Paul, do you want to just just to say that it's not something that came up in any of these focus groups? Kind of, I dare say people would have discussed it if we'd given it to them as a prompt, but sort of as a spontaneous thing as to why you voted as you did or what, or even why how why other people voted as they did in 2019. It wasn't something that was kind of a spontaneous reaction from any of these groups at all. Um, no, very, oh, sorry, Arj, go on. Yeah, no, my, I just had a quick point, which is it's, it's, it's nothing new. The, the Tories were doing this in, in 2015, they were doing it in 2017, and, and it, it helped with... It helps keep incumbents in, I think, than anything else, um, especially when the government changes. So in 2010, obviously the government went blue. And then suddenly in 2015, all these Tory MPs had stuff that they could put on their leaflets from George Osborne building roads and, and what have you. Um, so it's, no, it, it's not anything particularly new, which probably plays into what Will says, that voters kind of expect this anyway. Uh, a very specific question, an interesting one. We've touched on it, I think, uh, in talking about Corbyn, but does the sort of age generation dynamics electorally play out in the same way in the Red Wall as they do in the rest of the country from Helen Farrell? Broadly, yes. And, the th I, and I'd, I'd kind of put in front of that that Broadly, everything plays out the same way in the Red Wall as it does in the rest of the country. It's yeah. not some mythical place that's very, very different. It's different compositionally, primarily. So there are fewer young graduates in these seats than there are in, I'm not going to use London, in Brighton and in Bristol and in those kinds of places. But most of the key trends that we have seen behave in much the same way in the Red Wall than they do elsewhere. In fact, the, the definition that James Canagazorum came up with of the Red Wall was precisely because they were kind of holding on. They were, they were still voting Labour when these trends were happening elsewhere. And what we've seen since 2017 is them catching up and them becoming very similar to, to everywhere else. And, and, and paradoxically, it's now they're the same as everywhere else that everybody treats them as different. We've kind of got it all, got it all slightly back to front. So, yeah, the dynamics are pretty much the same, but the, but the compositional effects are very different. Got far better football clubs as well, but anyway. Uh, Will or Arge? I was just going to make exactly the same point as, as Paul about did. football clubs? <laughs> no, I was going to talk to you about the, the wonders of West Ham, uh, Anand. But um, the, no, no, uh, Paula's point about James Canagatorium's original Red Wall analysis is spot on. Um, ultimately, yeah. these seats were... Um, voting a way that their demographics did not predict before 2019. They are now largely, not entirely, and there is still a portion of the Red Wall that is analogous, um, uh, sorry, not analogous, kind of, uh, kind of different to where um, to where it should be. But um, uh, the yeah, they they now largely vote 
in line with what demographics would predict and, and age is the big the single biggest driver of that more than more than anything else um so uh so i think i think yeah there isn't a huge amount of difference we shouldn't treat them as necessarily hugely dissimilar one one interesting question is whether or not the red wall will continue in the new path uh and um will continue to vote in the way that demographics would predict or whether or not they revert to the, to the previous uh, kind of cultural factors for voting Labour. And that is a big question. Uh, my, my hunch is that they will continue down the current, the new path rather than the old one, but I don't know. Hunch? I've got, I've got nothing okay. to add to that. These two, these two are the ex. And you've cut out again, so that's perfect. Uh, there's an absolute sod of a question from Jen Williams here, actually, which I'm... Would the findings have been different if the research had been in the northeast rather than in Yorkshire and Humberside? And if so, how might they have been different? I suppose the Houchen thing might have been one of the... that Will talked about a minute ago. Will? Well, so, so we were doing focus groups in uh, Redcarra basically exactly the same time that these focus groups were going on. So I can speak to, to that experience. Um, it was in the context of net zero. We, was, we were kind of interested in voters, uh, kind of T-side voters' views on net zero, but I think we can speak to wider themes as well. Um, my, I, was, I was structuring those focus groups that people, people had probably a greater understanding of levelling up in those, in, in those groups than I think came out in... Paula's research, um, uh, and they related it directly to Ben Houchen and the investment in uh, the red car refinery and the kind of broader kind of Tease Works uh, investment piece that Ben has been leading. Um, and they were just as cynical about the Conservatives' reasons for potentially doing that. They did see it as directly related to kind of political gain. Um, and they, the, the point that I made earlier about community and social fabric being fundamental was also very, very strong in that in those groups. So uh, people, people spoke quite in quite kind of immediate and uh, I don't not in, I don't mean this in a negative way, but a kind of parochial way about how to make their town better. It was it was about the lived environment of their town. It was about kind of jobs, skills, um, things like that, rather than big transformational projects. And levelling up was a was a kind of um, a very local affair rather than a big national mission. I'd say about three years ago, I've lost all sense of time, we did some focus groups in some of the poorest constituencies with Joseph Roundtree. And actually what was very, very striking in those was just how local everything was it was about parks it was about litter it was about boarded up high streets it was about broken windows uh that's what people were talking about nothing that was sort of recognizably sort of national uh i think that that trend has continued paula do you want to come on this question about the northeast i think we would get slightly different results if we did this anywhere and i pick up kind of ariana's point about the importance of local identity and local place but many of the themes i think would be similar and I think there's an interesting question to pose the northeast obviously gets gets lumped together because we're talking about the red wall but how different would this be if we went to some of the more rundown seaside towns in the southwest for example or places in the west midlands I think many of these issues resonate in similar ways in all of these places and it's what it's <laughs> this is going to sound 
slightly hypocritical having just written a report with red wall in the title but it's one of the reasons why i'm not convinced the red wall is a useful framing for some of these questions because there are so many shared issues across so many places that aren't all kind of north of birmingham let me just say before turning to you Arge, in case you want to come in that i should apologize that ariana hasn't dropped out because of a signal she had to leave early i knew that before we started and forgot she actually came and did this panel in the spare hour she had in a conference, uh, which she's speaking at. So thank you to her. And don't worry, it's not because she's lost signal. But Arj, anything to say on Northeast? What differences we might have found? Sorry, were you asking me something? I dropped out for a second there. No, no, I was just asking if you had anything to add on the Northeast and whether we'd have found anything different had we done our focus groups there. You've frozen with a fantastic expression on your face. Oh. Hello. Hello. Yes, would it have been different if it was in the Northeast uh, and if it was in, the York in Yorkshire number? Can you hear me now? I can, do you want to turn your video off <sighs> while you answer? Right, I think we're about to move. <laughs> on from Arge. So the lesson of today's event is don't do events from Parliament if you can possibly help it. Uh, right. Uh, would a commitment to proportional representation be a vote winner or popular in red wall seats is something that's come up from a lot of people. I mean, you know, you could see in parts of the country that it might be, but would it be uh, a bit of a difficult sell? I don't think it would be popular. Um, some of the analysis, this doesn't come from these focus groups. We didn't ask about constitutional change, um, electoral reform or anything like that in these particular focus groups. But if you go back and look at something like the British Social Attitudes data, um, the vast majority, about, about half of people are um, happy with how things are. The types of demographics you find in the red wall so i haven't analyzed this specifically by the red wall i'm i'm extrapolating from the demographics um are far more um likely to say that they want to see an english parliament and that kind of constitutional change than electoral reform per se so i don't think it's something that's a, a massive vote winner in these in these kinds of areas english parliament that's interesting will um, so I don't have a huge amount to add, and we, we haven't we haven't tested this specifically in groups. Um, but uh, but my my kind of instinct would be that uh, kind of complicated constitutional reform, uh, like you just struggle to get voters to really engage with it. I, I suspect if you asked people what what proportional representation meant, um, you would probably not get hugely sophisticated answers um, would be my instinct from running groups. And uh, I might be doing voters as a service there, but I think that's probably broadly right. Um, and, and even if people didn't know what it meant, they wouldn't necessarily have very strong views on it because it's, it's just very remote from the issues that, that matter in their everyday lives and that they want politicians to be focusing on. Okay, I'm keep, I keep hoping that Arj is going to pop up actually in the chamber the next time we see him, as he sort of keeps, looks like he keeps moving around <laughs> some sort of exciting parliamentary room. We've got time for one more question. There's one very specific one you can maybe just tackle very, very fast, Paula, which is, uh, were there any differences you noticed between West Yorkshire and Humberside? 
apart from the fact that people were nicer in West Yorkshire. But it, that wasn't in the question. I can't speak to that because the groups were mixed. They were organised by voting behaviour. And so I have no way of knowing where in, an individual participant was actually from, aside from trying to guess from accents on the, on the recordings, which I don't think I'd be expert at. OK, and the final question, I mean, it's, it's targeted at you, Will, but I mean, anyone can chip in. What, what, just clarify what you mean by social fabric. And there's a bit of a sting in the tail, which is, has social fabric been affected at all by austerity? So what we mean by social fabric is, uh, well, is it, we've, we've come up with a definition and we measure it using an, an index, which you can read about uh, on Onward's uh, website, ukonward.com. Um, but, uh, but essentially we mean um, community in the broadest sense. So uh, the networks and institutions which, uh, which uh, kind of carry and strengthen relationships between people uh, within a place um, and between people and their place as well. So it's kind of intrinsic to the kind of sense of belonging, but then also the kind of wider local economy, um, independent businesses, um, and indeed kind of government institutions. So kind of local council, schools, um, public services as well. Um, and uh, we we constructed that that kind of index and kind of defined it as thus, as actually after doing a load of qualitative and quantitative work to try and understand what aspects of the local place were important to people. Um, and so we came up with with a definition. Um, but I think the, the kind of just the, to kind of boil that down into a very quick summary, it's essentially um, uh, place-based community, the, the kind of every, everything that people um, experience within, within their place um, that relates to, to community and kind of society and, and kind of um, social well-being. Um, and actually the, the government used our definition and, and referenced lots of our work in the Leveling Up White Paper last week. So I guess it's now official government policy too, which is good. All right, well, we're certainly not leaving him with the last word with a with a rival think tank's website <laughs> and all this. So someone else. Arj, do you want to, anything to say? I mean, maybe back from your days when you were sort of at the Yorkshire Post, I mean, what, what people's sort of concerns were about things like social fabric? Um, I, I, I have one quick point to make on social fabric, which is that it, it's interesting that um, Boris Johnson's government came into power and is now trying to enact essentially a programme of reversing the austerity cuts whether that's 10,000 police officers whether that's money into the NHS whether that's more money for education and so on I think he's recognized that if he wants to hang on to these so-called red wall seats he needs to invest in public services and that's obviously causing a massive tension within the Conservative Party as well in that their traditional base is now rubbing up against this new voter coalition um, as Boris Johnson tries to repair what is arguably the social fabric of these places. Brilliant, thanks. And Paula, you get the last word. I'm not sure I want the last word. Oh <laughs> I'm not sure I've got anything to add on social fabric. <laughs> but I, what I will add, I think, is there's a quote right at the very end of the report that really captures the sense of collective trauma that people and areas have been through over the last two years. And you don't move through and repair that trauma by building new roads. You need that social infrastructure and social fabric to allow people to work through that trauma. So that's my um, take on social fabric that actually, it's not just about 
rebuilding what's lost from those areas, it's also going to be essential for people to be able to move through what everyone has experienced over the last two years. I mean, it grieves me to say this, but the Onward work is really rather good. So uh, do have a look at their website uh, if you're interested in more on this social fabric issue. But we have, I'm afraid, run out of time. Uh, thank you all in the audience for joining. There is somewhere in that chat, if you go down it, a link to the report we've been discussing today. I've got a feeling you'll get the chance to fill in a survey. If you can do it, we'd be very, very grateful, particularly if you're nice. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. We've got a whole range of events coming up. We've got our first big in-person event coming up later this week, which I'm looking forward to. This is month, sorry, not this week. So check out our website. But in the meantime, thank you to Will, to Arj, despite his technological issues for soldiering on, for Ariana for squeezing out of that conference and talking to us when she was tight on time, and of course to Paula. And we look forward to seeing you all soon. Thank you all very much indeed. Take care.